This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room. I'm David Lombardo, and joining me for a grab bag interview of sorts is State Senator Zellner Myrie, a Brooklyn Democrat. Welcome back to the show, Senator. Always good to be with you, Dave. Well, yeah, I wanted to do a grab bag conversation because it's been a while since we've had you on the show and there's a lot to catch up on. Plus, you know, you're a renaissance man with a lot of irons in the fire, so I'm sure you're up for it, right? Well, I'm most certainly up for it. I'm not sure I would agree that I'm a renaissance man, but looking forward to the conversation. Okay, well, let's start with a bill of yours that was signed into law in December, but the governor's signature came with some strings attached. Uh, This is legislation that has to do with uh, defining a mass shooting for the purposes of accessing services and supports. What is the issue that you're hoping to address with this now law? We have seen, unfortunately, uh, mass shootings become a normal part of the conversation in this country. Uh, and certainly there are is an entire generation of folks, uh, I would count myself and you, uh, Dave, in that generation that since Columbine, the temptation to be numb to mass shootings and, and how they occur. But even in all of that despair, we have had in, in communities of color uh, specifically, we have not gotten the same attention on this very issue. And uh, since I've arrived in the legislature, one of the issues that we have taken on is gun safety uh, and preventing gun violence from happening in the first place. And what's required for that, uh, it's resources. We need access to resources to intervene when violence happens, to prevent it from happening, and also to help the community heal after it has happened. And, And for too long, we did not define in our laws what a mass shooting is. And we needed to have that definition in order to unlock the resources uh, that the victims and the community needs after these things take place. Uh, And I was really proud to work with Assemblymember Monique Waterman on this and to get the idea from the people on the ground and the community. Uh, And I was happy to see it signed into law. So the original legislation uh, would define a mass shooting as uh, something that involves firearms and has four or more people other than the individual or the alleged uh, shooters injured or killed. The governor pushed back on that definition and pushed for what she described as the FBI's definition of a mass shooting, which involves four fatalities. And that is essentially the uh, language that was put into law, actually very recently as the result of a chapter amendment. What do you think of this threshold? Is that a meaningful difference in terms of accessing services like we were just talking about? Well, our intentions were clear, as you pointed out, Dave, uh, in the bill that was passed uh, in the legislature. We thought that was important. And uh, there was a policy difference between us and the governor on uh, this particular subset of the definition. Uh, And we ultimately, in the interest of wanting to have Uh, something on the books uh, to allow for uh, the community to start getting these resources whenever tragedy happens, we advance that forward. Uh, But I look forward to further discussions on this. Uh, This would also require the Office of Victim Services to promulgate some regulations and to have a more public comment period uh, around this issue. Uh, And I assume and suspect that many of our community members will have an opportunity to Uh, weigh in on that and hopefully work towards this definition uh, in the regulatory process. Well, assuming moving forward that having any definition on the books results in an expanded access to services and supports, especially uh, not just in, say, high-profile mass shootings uh, that we think about maybe at like a school or uh, out out in Buffalo uh, at the grocery store, 
what is the ramification of that change? I mean, what do you potentially see as the long-term benefit of this legislation? Because it doesn't seem like shootings are going away. The tragedy in working in this space uh, is that the tragedy feels like it's in perpetuity, that it does not have an end. Uh, But I like to look at it a little differently. uh, And I like to dream of the day where we will have no incidents of shooting. And people think that that is a pie in the sky aspiration. Uh, But I uh, don't think that we should be aiming for the lowest common denominator of the status quo. We can have a world and communities that feel safe and where shootings do not happen because that exists now. There are pockets of violence. uh, And I think we need to invest the resources to remove all of the things that lead to that violence. And resources are a very important part of that. It's why when we are talking about public safety, uh, that that is a co-created reality that involves law enforcement, that involves violence interrupters, but that involves our educators. It involves the people that feed us because everything, uh, the social determinants all influence uh, where these crimes and tragedies occur. So I think having a culture of resources is going to pay dividends in the future. Well, I want to pivot then away from public safety specifically and turn to housing. And the governor is looking to make it easier for New York City uh, to build new housing in the future as part of the proposals in her executive budget. And I'm curious whether anything that she has laid out in this executive budget stands out to you in terms of fostering a meaningful bump in the creation of new homes uh, within the five boroughs. I think there is broad agreement between the legislature and the governor that we must do more on housing, that we must uh, make it easier uh, where appropriate to build, uh, and that we must protect our tenants. What the governor has proposed in this budget, I think are valiant first efforts uh, to get there. I think it remains to be seen uh, what material impact uh, these will have, uh, but we will of course be going in detail on that in the housing hearing uh, that that is uh, still yet to be had. Uh, I think uh, for us uh, as legislators having to come back to our districts every week, uh, we know that the number one issue for our constituents is housing and trying to find a place to live. And so incentives, uh, you know, I, I, I believe the governor just recently announced some of the jurisdictions uh, that would be designated, quote unquote, pro-housing. Uh, so it's good to see some activity from localities uh, around the state and not just in New York City to help relieve some of the pressure. Uh, But I think as it relates to what happens uh, in the city, uh, the big question is going to be what tax incentive uh, the legislature and the governor can agree on to help with development, uh, but also an insistence. Uh, The tenant protections go right alongside that. Uh, And I think we had the opportunity to do both. I think uh, there will be political will to do both this year, and I uh, will be dedicating the balance uh, of our time in the budget, really fighting to ensure that we get something substantial. Well, you highlighted how there are a variety of moving parts in this conversation around housing. And at the governor's recent press conference where she was trumpeting the 20 pro-housing communities that the state had identified, she pushed back on the idea that uh, you have to uh, accomplish, say, a holistic housing package all at once right now, uh, basically as a way to push back on this idea that she needs to do something on tenant protections at the same time. From your perspective, though, when you think about the political realities in the legislature, 
is this a case where it is a kind of an all or nothing proposition? It has to be a conversation about new housing with tenant protections, or can one get done without the other? This is not just the political reality. This is the reality on the ground. In fact, the two things work together. Uh, And that is why you have seen, I think, some unlikely allies come together and say, you can do both of these things at the same time. The tenants who are here in this city, who have been here in our neighborhoods, who have made them attractive in the first place, deserve to have the opportunity to stay here and to grow. Uh, But we also want to attract other people to come in and fulfill their dreams. People come to this city uh, because of the opportunity that it presents, and and they too need, need places to live. Uh, in places to become integrated into our communities. Uh, And I think we can do both of those things at the same time. I think that there are many people who recognize uh, both in our legislative body, uh, but also in our communities, that if we responsibly build uh, and if we responsibly protect our tenants, we responsibly protect our homeowners, give people real and affordable opportunities to live in the neighborhoods with all the great resources that we say we want. Uh, I think that is the ultimate goal and should be the goal for us uh, by the end of this legislative session. And just to be clear, uh, yes, there, there isn't going to be one thing or one omnibus bill to our listeners that's Albany speak uh, for big, ugly bills. There's not going to be one piece of legislation that is going to solve our affordability crisis. However, uh, there are things that are necessary for us to do, not sufficient, but necessary for us to do in order to solve the crisis. And I believe that tenant protections and uh, making things easier to build are some necessary components to that. Well, sticking with housing policy that has already been adopted, you successfully got legislation adopted governing the issue of deed theft, a a real problem in uh, parts of New York City in particular. When do you anticipate we'll begin to see the ramifications of that legislation in New York? Last year in the legislature, there was a a bill uh, that was passed that dealt mostly with the civil side of deed theft uh, and some of the processes there. Uh, So that was written into law. We got a law passed in the Senate that would criminalize deed theft. It currently is not a crime to steal someone's deed uh, to attack their generational wealth. You can do that without consequence uh, in our statutes. Uh, That passed the Senate uh, but did not pass the Assembly. I was excited to see the governor include our deed theft bill on the criminal side in her executive budget. So I think that we have a shot this year to actually get that on the books and then empower our law enforcement agencies to go after the bad actors uh, in this space. It is a a story that too many New Yorkers know well, uh, particularly our Black New Yorkers, uh, specifically in Central and East Brooklyn and Southeast Queens and the Northeast Bronx and parts of Harlem, uh, where people have seen their wealth evaporate because they were scammed uh, out of their deeds. And so I think this is a really uh, encouraging sign uh, that we are all talking about it now. And I look forward, hopefully, to getting this in the budget uh, and then empowering the DAs shortly thereafter to go after the bad actors. And after a quick break, we'll have more with State Senate Elections Committee Chair Zellner Myrie, a Brooklyn Democrat. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion about deed theft, as well as visit a major election law that took effect in 2023.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our discussion with State Senator Zellner Myrie, a Brooklyn Democrat who chairs the Chamber's Committee on Elections. And before the break, we were talking about his efforts to impose new criminal penalties for deed theft. Well, given the Assembly majority's reluctance to increase the criminal statutes that are on the book, it seems like making deed theft a a crime or criminalizing it more than it is now seems like an uphill battle. So given the existing civil uh, avenues that have been expanded upon as the result of laws from 2023, is that something that you think can make a difference in the interim? Or do you feel like it's almost toothless without a criminal component? No, I think there are opportunities for the actions that we took on the civil side uh, to be helpful, to to clarify some of the processes and the judiciary and uh, with filing notices, et cetera. And and again, this is a necessary, sufficient topic area. I think that that's a good start, um, but it's not a sufficient action uh, because that has not um, and will not, I don't think, ultimately deter the worst actors from carrying out these various schemes. And the, the difficulty with deed theft is that it is a crime that is ever evolving. The scams are ever changing uh, and the populations remain vulnerable. And that is why I think we need to use every avenue, uh, both civil and criminal uh, avenues, uh, to attack these schemes. Uh, because everyone in this ecosystem, uh, the judiciary and our law enforcement officials in the community need all the tools they, they can get uh, in order to rid ourselves of these players in this industry. So the governor's budget has been out for less than a month now, and I've already heard from probably a dozen groups uh, looking for anywhere from a couple million dollars more in the budget to hundreds of millions more. And I imagine you're hearing the same from constituents and activists who might even have uh, bigger price tags uh, in mind. Given that demand for state funds, why do you think there hasn't been at least to my ears, a more meaningful and coordinated conversation around digging deeper into the pockets of wealthy New Yorkers to fund some of the things that uh, people are asking for at the budget hearings, like the housing vouchers or uh, expanded investments in the childcare industry or even bigger ticket items like uh, the public education aid or Medicaid reimbursement rates? Yeah, you know, I think that politics are always uh, in the background uh, of what is happening around the budget process and um, oftentimes subject uh, to what the political trends and winds uh, are of of that that, that particular season. Uh, and, And so, you know, whether something is discussed or not discussed or elevated or not, or even the timing of that, I know, Dave, you've been covering Albany for a long time, uh, issues that did not appear throughout the first four months of the budget conversations, uh, in some instances, the very night before the budget needs to be passed, uh, suddenly become an issue uh, or are made an issue by a particular party in, in the budget process. So I never get into the guessing game about why something rises to the top of attention and why it doesn't. Uh, but on the substance of the issue, I think it's important uh, for everyone to recognize that we are the wealthiest state uh, in the entire 
country uh, and we are the financial capital of the entire planet. Uh, and so, yes, we should be able to provide um, after school programming for every student that needs it. We should be able to provide childcare uh, for all of our hardworking families that need that and which the polling has indicated is their number one concern. We should be able uh, to provide affordable homes. Uh, we should be able to give the tax incentives uh, to allow to build that type of affordable housing. Uh, and I think that should always be uh, at the fore of our conversations. I also uh, recognize uh, that uh, a lot of our working families now cannot afford or cannot contemplate having an increase uh, on their taxes. And so any conversation that we have should be starting with the wealthiest amongst us uh, uh, sh who should be paying uh, their fair share and who uh, in some instances do pay uh, a lot right now. Uh, uh, but I think we have other opportunities uh, and other things we should be looking at to save taxpayer money. Uh, we have a criminal justice conversation a lot of times uh, that is based on hysteria uh, and hyperbole, uh, but we rarely discuss why we spend so much money on a system uh, that is not working. Uh, we are going to be having a hearing next week uh, uh, to talk about uh, what Corecraft, which is the state's Department of Corrections uh, working organization, uh, why we are spending so much money and making money off of the backs of people who are incarcerated. What is the taxpayer getting uh, in return for that? I think um, when we uh, talk about some of uh, other investments that are made on the economic development side, promises that were made to us by developers uh, like at Atlantic Yards, uh, where we were promised affordable housing and the state shelled out a lot of money uh, to get development in that area and to get a new arena in that area. And we are still a decade later waiting for those promises. So I think the conversation should be holistic uh, and I think for everyday working New Yorkers um, who are already paying more than they can afford in rent, already paying more than they can afford in childcare, we should be thinking about every way for us to get them those resources. Well, finally, if I can put your Senate Elections Committee chair hat on for a second, I think one of the really underreported changes in law that were advanced in 2023 uh, has to do with an aspect of the voting rights legislation that creates this pathway for uh, legal challenges based on municipalities setting up districts that might not necessarily be promoting opportunities for uh, minorities to be represented in uh, their local governments and other institutions. And we've begun to see some lawsuits utilizing uh, this law. What is your sense of the uh, implementation of this law and the legal challenges we're beginning to see? Do you see this as the start of a much bigger trend, potentially? Well, we passed this law uh, with the intention of having every single eligible voter in this state be empowered to exercise their constitutional right to vote. And oftentimes when we talk about voter discrimination or dilution or suppression, we go to the South and we think, well, certainly that is a story from Georgia or certainly that's a story from Florida with no offense to anyone from either of those states. But we have had a history of that type of behavior in this state. Uh, and just last year, as you mentioned, Dave, uh, for the first time, a group of Latino voters uh, sent a notice of an intention uh, to file litigation 
because they had not been able to elect anyone of their preference uh, for the entirety of the town's history. Uh, and uh, subsequently, the town did not respond uh, to that letter and they have brought litigation. We saw uh, just recently litigation brought against Nassau County for their redistricting process. Uh, and so I think uh, the longer the law is on the books, uh, the longer um, that the Office of Attorney General, which is in process of notifying the jurisdictions that have to pay attention uh, to pre pre filing and pre notice, they, I think, are going to begin to see uh, that is the municipalities, towns, villages, etc. Uh, that if you are not doing right by every eligible voter. And if the systems in place do not provide them an opportunity to meaningfully participate in their democracy, then there will be consequences for that. I'm really proud that we stood up and did that in the face of national inaction on voting rights. And I'm proud that New York is remaining uh, on the path of going from worst to first in the space of our democracy. We're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with State Senator Zellner Myrie. He is a Brooklyn Democrat. Senator Myrie, thank you so much for making the time. Always good to be with you. Capital Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.